And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Our greatest architecture is about him, even in the Soviet Union. Right. Right. But your scientists are so preoccupied with whether or not they could have done this. Because you gotta go to the Soviet Union. And you have to you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Hello there, and welcome to this special Good Friday episode. I was just reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 39, uh, 33 through 39. What we're going to be focusing on today is the crucifixion and the resurrection, but mainly the crucifixion. Because to truly understand the victory of the resurrection, we first have to understand the victory of the cross. And to understand the victory of the cross, we have to understand what happened on the cross. And not just the physical sense, but also the historical and spiritual sense, as well as in the proper historical and spiritual context. So to do that, we're going to go through a few passages of scripture, as well as different writings from historians, theologians, and philosophers, as well as some writers, to really grapple with the cosmic concept of the crucifixion and how it applies to you and I in our present day. First, we'll talk about the crucifixion from a historical view and its implications. Then we'll talk about its philosophical and, more importantly, spiritual and theological implications. To begin this discussion about the crucifixion, we need to examine it from a historical perspective, from both secular and biblical sources. So to begin, we'll look at a secular source, and we'll begin with Gaius Cornelius Tactius. Now, Tactius was a Roman historian and politician who lived from 56 AD to 120 AD. And he is really considered one of the greatest Roman historians who ever lived by modern scholars, and one of the reasons for that is that he lived in what is often referred to as the Silver Age of Latin literature. And Tacius really examines the reigns of Tiberius, Claudius, Nero, as well as those who reigned during the year of the four emperors, so uh, Gabla, Otho, uh, Vitilius, and Vespian. So this guy wrote across a long era of Roman history and Roman rulers, and it's in these histories that Tactius refers to the Christians in Rome in the context of the Great Roman Fire of AD 64. He says that to dispel rumors that Nero was to blame for the fire, that Tactius writes he, referring to Nero, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, 
from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. In most mischievous superstition, thus checked for, for the moment again, broke not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, as of the hatred against mankind. So obviously here, Tactius is writing about the persecution of the early Roman Christians due to Nero casting the blame of the burning of Rome on the Christians. Even though we can pretty accurately say that Nero actually burned the city to bypass the Senate and rebuild Rome in his own image. But in the middle of him talking about the persecution under Nero, he puts a little snippet about the tragedy of the crucifixion in there as well. And from a secular worldview, that's all the death of Christ is, right? From a purely non-biblical perspective, the death of Christ is just the death of a good rabbi or great teacher or some charismatic social leader. He was a guy who died too soon, but it's really just another name in history. But to the Christian, to the one who's been set free by the truth, this should be everything. And yet we don't really ever truly think about it. We may hear a sermon on Easter about the cross, or we may read an article about the suffering of Christ that Christ went through, or we may sing a song about what happened when Christ rose from the dead. But do we really ever think about the cosmic spiritual implications of what happened at the cross? Now, to explain the importance of the cross from the spiritual and theological perspective, I'm going to begin by reading the, from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, where it says this. And I'm reading from verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, there are a few major things to point out from this passage. First, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, all the way from Genesis to his own prophecies about his death. He fulfilled them all. Second, notice how Christ says, It is finished. Not, I am finished. This wasn't a admittance of Christ saying that he was defeated, but rather it was a declaration of victory. And thirdly, he gave up his spirits, meaning the Romans did not take it from him. Satan did not take it from him. Death didn't defeat him. But he sacrificed himself freely for the complete atonement of sin. Now, one of the questions that often comes up when discussing the crucifixion is what did Christ finish? Was it simply his, was it his ministry? Or was it something more? Well, the Gospel of Matthew records how the curtain in the temple 
that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, split in two from top to bottom. And this is often commented on in church culture about how a man is no longer separated from God, and how we can now have a personal relationship with our Creator, which is true, but there's also a deeper meaning that we often don't talk about. And to really understand it, we have to understand part of Jewish culture in the temple. You see, the whole idea of sacrifice was that it had to be done over and over and over again to appease God's wrath and to cover the sins of the people. So the work of a priest was never done. The priest was never able to rest because the sin of the people was never fully atoned for. Therefore, there were no chairs in the Holy of Holies, right? The priest could never sit because the job was never complete. But get this, when Jesus died, his blood, his blood covered all iniquity, all sin, and all transgressions, past, present, and future. Then if you go to the book of Hebrews, the two major themes of that book are the priesthood, and how Jesus is our great high priest, and rest. And since Christ paid in full the debt for sin, as our great high priest, he is able to sit at the right hand of God the Father, as the scripture says, because the sacrifice is finished. The great high priest can rest. The pastor and theologian, Dr. Elmer Towns, wrote about the death of Christ in his book, A Journey Through the New Testament, where he wrote this. The death of Jesus on Golgotha was more than a mere fact of history. While the woman witnessed the events of those hours on Golgotha, God saw those things happening which were not recognized on earth. The death of Jesus on the cross was viewed from heaven as substitutionary and redemptive. Also, it serves as the propitiation by which the world was reconciled to God. Dr. Towns continues, The atonement which Jesus accomplished on the cross was substitutionary in nature. In the context of the Old Testament law, those religious leaders who witnessed the crucifixion understood the need to offer a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Dr. Towns is saying here that the very people who crucified Christ understood that a blameless sacrifice needed to be offered to God, and yet many of those people who were crucifying him did not realize it would be the very Son of God whom they were killing. Dr. Towns further writes, An animal which was slaughtered and placed on the altar in the temple represented the one giving the gift. The death of Jesus was a fulfillment of all the typical sacrifices which had been offered under the law. Now here's where it gets interesting. There are several aspects of the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death. First, he died for the nation of Israel. Just as a matter of weeks before the crucifixion, Caiaphas had prophesied, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish, which is John eleven fifty. Second, Jesus died for the Christians. Paul reminded the saints at Rome, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, which is Romans 8, 5, 8. Third, Jesus died for the church. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, which is Ephesians 5, 25. Fourth, Jesus' death was adequate for everyone. One of the reasons for the cross was that Jesus might taste death for everyone, which is Hebrews 2.9. 
What Dr. Towns is saying is that Christ didn't just die for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, as John 3.16 put it. Dr. Town carries on by writing about the redemptive nature of the cross by writing this. The word redemptive also describes the death of Jesus. The word redeem means to purchase. Christians were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. The nature of this redemption is revealed in three different Greek words that Paul used in Galatians to describe redemption. The first word is agorosa, which is in Galatians 3.10, which means to purchase in the market. The second word is ekagorosa, meaning to buy and remove from the slave market, never to be sold again. The third word is luturu, which is in Galatians 5.1, meaning to purchase and give freedom. This means we have been given liberty by Jesus and are no longer slaves but sons. He also writes, another Greek word to describe Jesus' death is the word hilastrion, which means a place of propitiation. Uh, you can cross-reference that with Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2, and 1 John 4.10. In the context of the Old Testament, the place of propitiation was the mercy seat where the priest sprinkled blood on the Day of Atonement to satisfy the justice of God and the demands of the law. Dr. Town concludes his section on the cross by writing this. Jesus' death was also the means by which God reconciled the world to himself. In this present aspect of Jesus' death, everything was brought into the favorable light of God's mercy. This was accomplished by destroying the cause for amnesty between God and man and changing man himself. Jesus died that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting death the enmity. Also, Jesus serves as the mediator between God and man and represents man before God as an advocate. When God looks at man, he now sees him as crucified with Christ. When one is converted and therefore in Christ, there is nothing in man offensive to God. Now that I feel that we've grasped a good basic understanding of the cross and what happened through Christ's death, we can end this episode on the resurrection. And the person I'm going to quote on the importance of the resurrection isn't one most would think of. I'm going to quote from the famed author of The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in his work on the on fairy stories this, I would venture to say that the approaching the Christian story from this direction has long been my feeling, a joyous feeling, that God redeemed the corrupt making creatures, men, in a way fitting in this aspect as to others of their strange nature. The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect 
self-contained significance, and among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. But this story has entered history. In the primary world, the desire and aspiration of sub-creation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy, is permanently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of history. So take joy in the fact that Christ has trampled over death. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate you listening. We are a brand new podcast. Uh, There are no interns. There are no fancy ad campaigns. It's just myself and producer Jonathan here sitting in the world headquarters of Project 68, which really means the back rooms of our houses. So we would really appreciate it if you could share this one on social media or by text or just by good old word of mouth. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe and if you could share this podcast with someone you think would really enjoy it. Until next time, have an extremely blessed Easter. I'm Yael Nunn, and this has been Story Wars.